I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hi, everybody, and welcome once again to another edition of I-94 right here on WLPN Chicago. My name, as always, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. I'm joined, of course, by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. Hey, today we're thrilled to present the author Atticus Lish. His brand new and extremely well-reviewed book is called The War for Gloria. It is out from Knopf. Atticus is joining us from the wilds of Pasadena, California. Atticus, thanks so much for being with us here this morning. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Jamie, and hello to Jeremy and Mike. Really appreciate it. Let's dive right in. You know, Atticus, obviously, you, you come from a fairly well-known literary family. This is your second book, but you have a really kind of unusual background. I mean, you, uh, were, you were in the Marines for a year and a half, I understand. Uh, I know you uh, fought in mixed martial arts, which is uh, an unusual thing for a writer to do. Uh, and, of course, that found, you know, forms some of the uh, meat of your book. Could you talk a little bit about your background and, first of all, how you came in to uh, writing novels? Because it, it was an unusual uh, career path, uh, as I recall. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, well, uh, basically, you've asked me to summarize my entire life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at that. <laughs> so uh, I'll do my best. Um, so the, the first... Epoch was my childhood, and uh, my my father is a writer, editor, and teacher uh, of uh, of fiction. So um, there were books in the house. Uh, there was a IBM Selectric typewriter in the house. Uh, we're talking the seventies. Um, we're talking me living in a uh, small New York apartment in the fifties. Uh, on the east side near the Queensboro Bridge with my parents who had just moved there um, uh, from somewhere out west and uh, had started a life in New York and I came along and um, I from the earliest days I I guess I was aware of of uh, of writing of literature um, I, I didn't know that much about the nuts and bolts of my father's career, but um, but as I say, there were books everywhere. So very early on, uh, I tried to write. Uh, I put a, a piece of paper in that IBM Selectric, and I tried to write something. Okay, fast forward years later, I'm hitting uh, my teenage years, and um, it seemed to me that there were... Um, uh, uh, other things that I had to figure out how to do, uh, the usual stuff in the human life cycle, you got to deal with um, making a living, with uh, meeting girls, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I didn't do art for years. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps. I did the athletic stuff that you talked about. Um, then much later on, 2004, I try to come back to my college to finish up after a 10-year layoff. And when I'm there, I take a summer school writing course taught by a woman named Deborah Wilkes. Uh, I'd never taken a fiction writing course before, and it inspired me mainly because of the readings. Uh, I, I really caught fire reading Robert Stone and reading Hemingway and um, those two especially. Uh, nothing wrong with James Joyce, but I think Robert Stone really did it for me. His story, his short story, Helping, really grabbed me. Um, and so I started to try to write at that point. And um, I guess uh, that sort of brings us up to the present because that's what I've really been doing uh, for the past 13 years. Well, Atticus, you're on the right show. Um, I'm a vet. Mike's been a boxer. Jamie and I grew up you know, playing in punk bands and things like that. We all came into literature. And uh, Robert Stone and Hemingway, very well loved on the show as well. Um, so uh, we can totally relate. And that, that brings me, you know, I wanted to bring up a point in your book. And one of the things that I thought was impressive about the characterization is that you really had a, a, a lot of people write. I come from a very blue-collar family, and, and a lot of people portray you know, the blue collar or, you know, lower 
I guess lower class, working class white people as like either um, morons, morons, or like you know I do meth and fight in the trailer, or like you know I'm a Trump thumping, you know, and it's just like it like all groups of people, it's very nuanced, and I. I just wanted to mention, you know, I, I think people, we read a lot of books on the show, and I think you did a really great job of, like, portraying, like, the, the you know, the, like, the white working class in Boston, and you, you don't really see a lot of that uh, portrayed accurately, so I just want to give you some kudos for that. Yeah, I, and I wanted to follow on that, too. I mean, that was something I noticed. This this book, and I think um, your fellow author, uh, Andre DeBow, who wrote Course Short Townies, you know, mentioned that when he read the book, he felt so many books now feel like they're kind of done by committee and they're they're put out in the world to be a commercial product. I, I felt this book was uh, a very honest and heartfelt look um, at a social class that too often is not written about. You know, or we stereotyped. See, yeah, we see we see a lot of books about professors uh, dating their students uh, in the modern era and. I'm frankly really tired of that. It was really interesting to see, you know, a story about a young man trying to find his way in the world, working with uh, a roofer, a contractor, a carpenter. I worked in the trades for many years myself, and I felt it was it was very authentic and honest and, well, and moved very well. I just want to give it an example of that, and, and there's something very specific I'm thinking of the book that I think would have been harped on by um, other authors if they were looking for a more commercial product. So... There are parts of Cor – Corey is the son in the book. He's a teenager for most of the book. And uh, his mother is Gloria. The title is The War for Gloria. My mother's name is also Gloria. That's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, there's a period of their lives where they're living in a, in, in a car. They're living out of Gloria's car. But it, it's only mentioned in, in passing a couple times in the book. Um, you know, it's not something – these characters aren't – drawn out and characterized to be pitied. They're just followed. You you forget it's what good fiction does. You they're forget that victims. there's a writer yeah, they're not creating them. No. Yeah, exactly. Well and that and that brings me to um to a question I had I've been thinking about a lot in which which is the title, the the war for Gloria. There's so many ways you can think about this title, but what I was curious about was the choice of um the noun war. You know, it could have been the struggle for, for Gloria, and, and I thought about, um, you know, how, how that word is used a lot in, in movements now, and struggle kind of implies a sort of victimization, whereas war turns, turns you into the aggressor, and Gloria is, of course, uh, you know, the, the Latinate for glory. Um, it made me think of Where Men Win Glory by John Krakauer which is about the Pat Tillman Odyssey. But uh, read you, that. Yeah. 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 Big, big, I, that, I love the description of Pat Tillman in that book, by the way. Yeah. Well, it, so so where he got that title was from the Iliad, and it, it's this section of, of the Iliad where Homer's describing two guys meet on the battlefield, and then, you know, they have like a 10-minute tea time in the middle of the battlefield, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're about to try to kill each other, and then uh, they, they figure out that they're related way back down the line. And they, they decide not to fight each other. So one of the themes that I recognize in this book is, is and I could relate to a lot thinking back to my adolescence, is, is Corey trying to find a way to get recognition you know, for, from himself, from his father, from his peers. He's, he's basically pouring his soul into these different receptacles. You know, his, his mother, his, his father, his Tom. father figures to, yeah. to girls he thinks he loves, to a sport. And these things all just pour, pour it right back into him. Um, can you talk about the choice of the title and, uh, and also uh, how the idea of the book changed over time? I know you thanked your editor in the back about what the book should or shouldn't be. Uh, yes, I thank you for your question. Um, yeah, I uh, the, the the title um, probably came from a UFC fight. Uh, Mac Danzig uh, won season six of the U of Tufts, and when he won, he dedicated his fight to his his victory to his mother Gail. I remember watching this probably in 2007, and uh, I had known Mac. I'd crossed paths with, with him at Rico Ciparelli's gym in El Segundo in California in the early 2000s. And I, I'd never talked to him. And 
but when I, and so it was, first of all, it was amazing to see somebody that I'd seen in real life to see them coming over the TV screen. That was astonishing. And then um, I was really struck by how he said, this is my mother's birthday today, my mother, Gail. Now his mother's name began with G. I was writing prep at the time, but that moment stuck in my head. And when I came time to write this book, which I knew was going to have something to do with these themes, with uh, ALS and, and the themes of adolescence and coming of age, that came back to me. I started thinking about Mac Danzig and what he had said. And I thought, and, and then I went with the, the name Gail. Gail, what's like Gail? And that, I kicked it around a little, and that's how I got Gloria. Um, and of course, because of the double meanings of Gloria, it did seem like the right title. So um, that's the origin there. Um, your other point, how did the book change as I went yeah, along? Yeah. When I began writing the book, I wasn't, um, I, I, I actually tried to, I, I would say I was really trying to write two books at the same time, which was a big mistake. <laughs> I had just come off of reading a true crime called People Who Eat Darkness. Oh, I read that. Yeah, that's a great novel. I mean, uh, that's a great, that's a Japanese book, right? The Japanese guy? It, it, it's a, a book that takes place in Japan, about a crime that takes place in Japan. Yes, it's by uh, Richard Lloyd Perry, British guy, who's a foreign correspondent in Japan, I gather. And he writes about the case of a British citizen who goes missing in, in Tokyo. I'm with you. That book was chilling. And I, it, it hit me so hard and I admired it so much. I said, I, I, I thought, well, it would be great to write um, something that feels like true crime. So I really tried to do two things at the same time. In the end, one of them had to go. And, um, and uh, so I wandered around in confusion for years and years trying to resolve these two things. They didn't marry up properly together. Finally, I had to get rid of the... Uh, so-called true crime story, uh, the, this, this big extraneous thing that I tacked on. And really, I think what I wound up with was a drama and it freed the drama to um, fall into place the way, uh, the way it did. We're speaking with the author Atticus Lish. He's got a new book out from Knopf called The War for Gloria. Right now, in fact, let's pause and hear a selection from Atticus's book. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt, and we want to thank Ben Lamarquet and the International Anthem Recording Company for providing us with the backing music. You're listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We'll be right back after this. When Corey got home, he found her in a leaden, apathetic state, her eyes red and wads of Kleenex lying around her on the couch, and he found out about the horrible thing that had happened. ALS? What does that mean? I mean, what are you telling me? He asked. What was any of this? What was the meaning of her slumped posture and all these tissues? She was sitting on the couch acting like a little girl who had been yelled at. Where had his mother gone? The person he had seen this morning? What did neuromuscular degeneration have to do with them? And why did she keep crying? I'm going to die. She screamed. He brought her a glass of water with his hands shaking and kept whispering, I'm sorry. She got up and walked away, leaving the glass on the table next to the pile of literature she'd brought home from Beth Israel. The top pamphlet was called, ALS, What's It All About? He went to his room and listened to music on YouTube with his earphones in. An hour later, he heard a disturbance in the kitchen. It was his mother making dinner. She asked him if he wanted tofu, as if nothing had happened, and he had said yes. When they were eating, he broke the silence and asked her if there was anything he could do. Just help me wash the dishes. She put a piece of tofu in her mouth. He looked at her and saw tears running down her face. After dinner, she wandered back to her room, and he went to his room. In the middle of the night, he got up and found that no one had turned the lights out. It was three in the morning, and a kind of absolute silence prevailed. Her medical papers were strewn across the coffee table. Her door was half open as if she hadn't had the energy to shut it all the way. A mouth-like shadow gap through which he listened for the sound of her breathing. The weekend was 48 hours long and it passed like one endless day, a day on another planet. One with a longer orbit, interrupted by periods of darkness during which neither of them really slept. On Monday morning, he had been awake for hours when he heard her getting ready. Mom, are you going to work? He asked through the bathroom door. 
She came out wearing her flowered wraparound skirt, her face artificially smooth and young, surfaced with blush and lipstick. He followed her out to the car and watched as she backed out and accelerated away in her small, underpowered vehicle. The greater-than-mankind vista of sky and bay, the saltbox houses across the street, boats in the yards, and the city skyline across the bay catching the morning sun, trees cooling the road which curved out of sight, behind him the marsh grass glowing orange in the sun, heating, giving off the smell of grass and salt. It was, he could appreciate, what you would normally think of as a beautiful day. He was supposed to go to school. He went back inside and his eye fell on her pamphlet. He sat down and read it. Late in the morning, he caught the bus to Quincy Center. Except for the heaving engine, they drove in silence, swinging side to side on the curves up the road past the dark brick apartment buildings backed by trees, the historic graveyard. The man ahead of Corey had the emblem of the New England Patriots tattooed on the back of his neck. Hardly anyone else was riding. The town had emptied after the morning commute, and the tea station was desolate. Construction workers on a city project sat on the ground in the shade eating their lunches. Sitting in a pizzeria, he spent an uncertain length of time quietly aware of the sunlight shifting outside the shaded windows, the noon intensifying, shadows drawing back under doorways with Ferenc signs in them. The day was becoming an outdoor version of what he'd been doing indoors all weekend long, wandering from place to place without any idea why. That was a selection from the new novel, The War for Gloria, with Atticus Lidge. It's out now from Knopf, and we've been speaking with Atticus. Atticus, one thing um, we haven't talked about yet in your book is the title character, Gloria. She is the mother figure in the book, and she's seriously ill, as you discover very early on. In fact, you tell us very early in the book that she's going to die. So there's there's not a lot of suspense there. Uh, But can you talk a little bit about the path that Gloria goes on because she suffers from ALS um, and you talk about it in unsparing detail, I'd have to say. Uh, It was very moving and very affecting. Um, And I I think to most of us here, uh, also quite emotional. Um, I understand you also had a family member that you lost to the disease. I'm sure that influenced this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yes. Um, well, my mom, Barbara Lee Works, uh, died of ALS. Uh, so this, um, all, all the stuff that deals with the disease, I was really just writing what I had seen. Um, I, she was diagnosed in 1987 when I was 15. Um, I, I recall the diagnosis being surrounded with a little bit of vagueness in our house. I, I, I just was told your mother's going to be very sick. Gradually, I found out what ALS was. Um, the, in, in real life, in her life, uh, the decline uh, took uh, qu- quite a long time. It took seven years. I compressed that for the purposes of this book so it could coincide more with uh, Corey's coming of age. Um, uh, I, um, okay. So, uh, there's, um, there are several stages to the, to, to ALS and, uh, there are different kinds of ALS, but basically what happens is you begin getting weakness, uh, in a, a limb. Usually it's in a hand and then it moves to the opposite hand and then it moves to, uh, um, a, a foot or a leg usually, and then the other foot and leg. And I guess that has something to do with how the nerves are wired in your head that go, the motor nerves that go out to your body. And, um, and so you begin losing the ability to, uh, to, to walk. You'll go to a cane, go to a, 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 um, a walker, and, and then eventually to a wheelchair. The disease is progressive. Uh, I, so um, there are cases of remission, the most famous case being, I guess, Stephen Hawking. But, I, um, I, it, but uh, it generally keeps going. And um, the, the ultimate problem will be uh, difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing. Um, however, throughout all of this, the patient remains able to to think, even if they can't speak. Atticus, I uh, I lost my brother to ALS five years ago, and um, it was a uh, a year long uh, fight with the disease and an unwinnable fight. And I liked, you know, the uh, 
one of the things that you covered in the book is I didn't know what it was either. You know, he's like, oh, when he first was diagnosed, he's like, it's what the, you know, the ice bucket challenge is. And I'm just like, I don't, and then I Googled it and I was just like, oh, my God. But I, I like that. Well, I'll just say this. There was a lot of coverage where people were talking about, oh, you should eat leafy green vegetables and do aromatherapy. And I, and I remember my mom, you know, freaking out, going on the Internet and looking up all these things. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, I read about this. There's, you know, this might make you smell good for an hour, but, you know, this isn't going to yeah. change the yeah. course of the disease. But what I did want to say and I wanted to ask you is I was reading the book and I, I set it down. I was at my girlfriend's house. I just started bawling. And, you know, and that's a good thing. You know, if a, if a book can make you cry, I mean, that's amazing. And But how hard was it for you uh, yeah. to, to write about this? I mean, it was hard for me to read. So I can't even imagine like what you must have went through, especially processing that from, a, from you know, when you were a kid. Well, um, first, let me say that I, I am sorry for what, very sorry for what you and your family went through, for what your brother went through. Uh, so, um, for what little good that will do you. But um, no, anyway, same to you. I mean, I appreciate it. It's, it's like a, it's, a, it's like going to war. It's like you can't understand it unless you've lived it. You know, I, that's the way I look at it. That's a pretty good way to look at it. I, I, I think that um, it's uh, it, it, there. There are a lot of things about it uh, I never would have guessed. Uh, I, I one of the trickiest things to uh, handle, which I know you experience, is 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 how hard it is on the caretakers because you're you're always on duty and there's nothing you can do for somebody in that position really, and. Um, you you it, it sounds you know it, it sounds wrong it's it, or it did to me it sounded like i was complaining but people would tell me you know you caretakers burn out with us you know what i mean and so people would say you know you got to rotate the people who are on on the scene ideally there are a lot of people who can help out the patient uh, that, that's in the ideal case you have a big family or a lot of friends or something it's it's um, difficult otherwise because then it ends up you end up relying on home health aides some of whom are angels and some of them are, at best are strangers and you know that's that forms a key thing in the book you know Corey tries to handle his mother's illness uh, increasingly yeah. on his own until uh, a certain point in the book he, he no longer can and his feelings of shame and worthlessness are, are very apparent uh, on the page I, I kind of want to back up a little bit, though, uh, and talk a little more about Corey, who is, I think, in a way that the heartbeat of the book as so. well, um, because his path, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is that Corey is a kid in this book. And it's rare, at least for me, to read a book where a kid is portrayed accurately. You, you, And I mean by that... you. In reading Corey, I found him to be a very believable human being who I also believed he was 15. You know yeah, what I mean? He the, made the decisions that I think a 15-year-old might. Or, or didn't make the decisions. Or, didn't, or yeah. didn't make, yeah. And and I think that is a rare thing to find a book that treats a child as a human being and not a, a, a open quote kid. Yeah. And I, I wanted to talk to you about that because I thought that was the most impressive thing about the book uh, to me. Um, was the fact that this was a, a fully rounded character. And we talk a lot on the show about, you know, uh, you know uh, Jeremy has been a librarian for, you know, young adult lit and stuff like that. I wouldn't call this necessarily a young adult book at all. Heck no. <laughs> no. But, no. you know, I was really impressed by that voice. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about whether you had read young adult fiction or had followed, you know, in the path of other people who had written about the point of view of kids. I haven't read young adult fiction lately, unless you count Horatio Hornblower. I don't know if you guys are into yeah. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I never heard of yeah. that. Yeah. I, I read that while writing this. Yeah. I like, I, I remember loving the, the YA books when I was a kid. My, some of my favorite reading I did when I was younger and and I often felt that the books that are geared towards adults aren't as good as the the stuff you get when you're a kid, the King Arthur, the, mm. the 
the books the books that have mythology in them the um also the island of the blue dolphin the kids were uh, the books where kids sort of go out on adventures on their own they have a magic to them um that sounds cliched to say but it does, but it's true for me uh so um I, I yeah at least i had the experience of reading those things when i was young and um uh, certainly enjoyed it We've been speaking with the author Atticus Lish. He's got a brand new novel out called The War for Gloria. We do need to take a break right now to remind everybody of the folks that make this station possible. After the break, we're going to come back with another reading from Mr. Lish's book. Once again, it's out from Knopf Publishers, The War for Gloria. And you are listening to I-94 right here on WLPN, Chicago Lumpen Radio. We'll be right back. This summer on I-94, Joe Mino, Makita Brotman, Nancy DeCantle, J.P. Olson and Luke Walden, Tom Lynn, Atticus Lish, Paget Powell, Peter Cameron, Margot Mifflin, Chris Ware, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpin' Radio. His opponent, Jack, had broad shoulders and a big face like a TV personality, an older man's face, as if he had spent his young life working on an oil rig. His long shorts hit his knees and foreshortened his legs, making him an oversized barrel-chested torso planted on a set of knotty calves and big feet like a cholo gangster. Corey, you need this fight to be on the ground. You need to be on top, Eddie shouted. Don't take bottom. The bell rang and the two men ran at each other and Jack dropped Corey with his first punch. The audience saw a white body fall under Jack's knee. Jack's fist was rising up and swinging down on a blonde head. The crowd realized what was happening and its screaming turned deafening. Roll out, Eddie bellowed. Corey turned himself upside down and tried to roll. He kicked his legs up and rolled out from underneath the knee. Jack fell on him. Their bodies looked like two logs bouncing up and down, hitting each other. Both logs flew straight up off the ground against gravity, and Corey picked up Jack, swore, and body slammed him. Jack dove up and took him down. Because the action happened so fast and Jack wound up on top, the spectators saw him body slamming Corey. Corey opened his legs like a crab and shut them on Jack's head and tied his legs in a knot. Jack stopped trying to hit him. The ten-second clapper sounded. Corey was straining to hold the knot shut. His leg came off Jack's shoulder and hooked over the side of Jack's face. Suddenly, the ref ran over and grabbed Corey's legs and pulled them off. The bell rang. Corey let go and Jack turned away, holding his arm. The capsule of his elbow joint had popped. Eddie was on his feet yelling and cheering. Corey jumped up and screamed with a bloody mouthpiece. The ref called him to the center of the ring and grabbed his wrist and lifted his arm. The winner by armbar submission, the announcer said. Corey's body ran with sweat. Sweat was gathering in his eyebrows. His face was sunken and blood was running out his nose. He took the announcer's mic in his gloved hand and said, I want to dedicate this fight to my mother, Gloria. She's the only real gangster I know. He climbed down from the cage and went back to the locker room barefoot, carrying his pile of clothes and sneakers. Guys leaned out of the audience to slap him on the back. He went directly to the bathroom stall and threw up. There was blood in his ears. The medics came and looked at him. His eyes had red rings around the pupils as if he was turning into a werewolf. They took his blood pressure and held a bag of ice on his head. He told the female EMT she looked pretty. She seemed to have a negative opinion of anyone who would fight on the grounds that it was an irresponsible risk to take. Eddie sat with him and took the ice from her and held it on Corey's head. They asked him if he wanted to go to the hospital and he said no. Jack came in grinning, holding an ice bag on his swollen elbow and shook his hand. Corey sat up for him. The MTs packed up and left. Jack said goodbye. I'll be back to training soon and flexed his red swollen arm. He left too. Nice job, beautiful job, Eddie said. You can't teach that. Corey got his gloves off, leaving tape and gauze on the floor and changed and left the dressing room and limped out to the bleachers and watched the rest of the fights with Eddie. Eddie said, this is how it begins. You've got a career in the making. Eddie was wearing a shirt that said, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. The quote from Shakespeare's Henry V before the Battle of Agincourt. The promoter talked to me. He wanted to see you back here. We'll look at what he says. We'll move you up the right way, depending on what you want. If you keep working like you have been, you could go somewhere with this. 
Welcome once again to another edition of I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Howdy. And you just heard an excerpt from Atticus Lish's new novel, The War for Gloria. It is out right now from Knopf, and we've been speaking with Atticus for most of the first half hour. We've got a few more minutes with him. Atticus, I wanted to talk to you before we went to break. We were talking about the main character of Corey, and I kind of wanted to stay with him for a little bit because uh, this may sound like a strange comparison, but, but allow me to make one. I thought that this book reminded me a lot in a very particular way of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest because that book in its part was one of the best books about tennis I've ever read. And I thought also this people book, in recovery houses and yeah, Boston. And yeah. Boston, but this this book I I thought was perhaps the best thing I've read on mixed martial arts, which I I must admit I have never really been particularly interested in. I've I've been I'm a big boxing fan, but I, I've never gotten into the MMA. The other thing I've read is Thrown by, uh, I can't remember her, her name. She followed a couple of MMA fighters. It was okay, but yeah. I, I like this better. I, I, I thought this was a really interesting look into that world. And I, I wanted to talk to you about it because, you know, sports writing, I, I used to be a sports writer uh, in a former career for many years. I worked in, in television and print. Can, can you talk a little bit about the MMA portion of this book because it forms a real central arc in, in Corey's development. Uh, well, I always felt that uh, fighting in one form or another went together with my mother's illness. Um, I, I just knew those two things uh, belonged together for me. Um, then in the early 90s, my, my mother passed away in uh, 94. I, th this happened right around the beginning of the UFC. So both, and I was young enough at the time that that was something that really caught my attention. So I think the seeds were planted together. Now, um, when it came time to write the book, by then I'd uh, been a fight fan for a long time. And um, I had also dabbled in it. Uh, and so I was able to pull from personal experience and also just uh, to uh, add in things that I'd seen to, to do research by going to the fights. I, I went up to Cage Wars in Albany, for example, and uh, watched the fights and kind of wrote, painted a picture of what I saw and able to uh, use that for the book. Uh, one, one of the things I wanted to put a point on with, with Corey and his characterization was his the size of his ambition, his eagerness to, to please and, and really just be good, and uh, how that collides with what he's actually able to do and the decisions he makes and the hesitations he has and the trouble he gets into and all that. that that's what really made it realistic to me. That's what my experience has been and how I see other people uh, move through the world. But it's not just him. His his mother has a history of, of stopping and starting and and uh, driving towards goals and giving up and starting again. And you know, um, part of what this novel seemed to be saying to me is um, think about what you pay attention to. And uh, Buddhism was was a minor theme in I, I would call it a minor theme in your first book, preparation. And, and and also came up thematically in this book. Um, and when I think about religion in your and, and this book, I, I think about Job. This is like, this is kind of a book of Job of happening to a young kid, but who who had nothing to begin with and just keeps getting hammered away and hammered and hammered and hammered by life. Um, can you talk about... Uh, the decision to how your characters deal with life, you know, in, in preparation, we're dealing with Brad Skinner, who's a, who's a war vet and uh, is finding it very hard to reacclimate to life here. You know, Corey is, is dealt a raw deal from the get go. His father's not really in the picture. His mother's diagnosed with ALS and he's just trying to find a way to get a toehold. And most of the time he fails. And that, uh, as far as mainstream fiction goes, that that's not usually what hits the charts but this this grabbed me um can you talk about your characters the the most a lot of them seem adrift can you talk about why that is maybe well i think my overall vision for this is that there is a 
there is a world that works around us. Um, I, I basically have a positive plus negative view of the human race. That's no great insight, but it's but the the key part is it's also positive. There is glory. The sheer fact that we're all still here that's something to me. I mean, you know, how long ago was World War II? Everyone's fate hung in the balance back then. I, I've been reading a bunch of World War II history lately. So the, the fact that good things can still happen after outrageously atrocious things, uh, that says something. There's a Sistine ceiling somewhere, you know? So um, I so I didn't have a purely negative vision. I had a vision of the world, which I think comes across at the end of people driving on the highways, making the world run, stringing the power lines, uh, uh, paving the streets. Um, I, I don't have um, a, a view that everything is disaster. And I saw after uh, my, 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 my attitude about what Corey goes through, my attitude on his behalf is that after his, uh, at the end of his story, he's on the way up. It's like that Tesla song, Little Susie's on the Up. You know, it's, it's, it's not all downbeat. <laughs> nice. Amazing. You know, one person we haven't talked about yet, and I, I do want to talk about I it. hope you're going to say the dad. Uh, that's that's what exactly yeah, yeah. what I was going to say. <laughs> Leonard, uh, Corey's father. Now, you know, Gloria, when... Gloria also seemed, young Gloria, I should say, seemed a very uh, recognizable presence to me. I, I remember a lot of people like that. And same. I also saw Husker Du in Providence, Rhode Island at around that same time. Uh, was, a, was a big fan, played at the Middle East with my band, actually. So I, a lot of people like that I, I knew. Um, and Leonard becomes an increasingly malign presence i would say in the novel um i don't want to give away any spoilers for the end of the book but that's that was the hard thing to talk about the dad because yeah i don't want to ruin anything but but well i I do think there are many hints early on that he is a a grossly manipulative person who seems to have um strange fixations and strange uh delusions of his own. You know, he keeps talking to himself just for one example as a police officer when he's not. Yeah. He's yeah, a just security as a, guard as at, at a, MIT and very strange. Side know? note, I don't think the true crime got thrown out. There was a true crime feel to this book. It wasn't a true crime story necessarily, but yeah. some of the ways it was set up, it like it there were things revealed later on that make the whole story make sense. At the multiple uniforms, I was like, huh, because I'm a true crime buff too. And I'm like, if he has multiple security guard uniforms, something is up, you know. Yeah. What what I wanted to get at, though, and without, again, giving too much away to the end of the novel, you know, Gloria, um, against her better judgment, seems to love Leonard and seems to need something from Leonard, and he is basically just a, a psychic vampire in a lot of ways. And, you know, Corey um, also needs something from his father, which he, he doesn't oh, get. He, he gets brutal. He gets... Uh, pretty much everything wrong <laughs> that a father would do. Can you talk a little bit about um, that these relationships? Because, you know, Leonard is kind of the dark star that unfortunately the characters rotate around, even though he's, he's, he's there and then he's not there. And his, but his absence, you know, hurts both glory and Corey, and then he's back. And then can can you talk a little bit about that because I, that there is a steadily uh, increasing sense of dread around that character as the yeah. book goes on. Um, yeah, I, I think Leonard's the type of uh, person. I, I, I hesitate to actually call him a father, but he's somebody who's sitting there in the role, occupying the role of a father. He's an older man in a younger man's life. He could provide guidance, and what he does is he just manipulates him. Um, I, I'm reminded of, uh, uh, speaking of true crime, I'm reading a book, rereading a book called Murder Machine, true crime book. You guys ever hear of it? I have it's, not. Um, it's about Roy DeMeo, who's uh, in the mafia. Um, so anyway. Um, we're we're going to write that down. I'm writing it down. <laughs> I saw you. I saw you. So, um, anyway, there's a relationship in that book that, act, that, that strikes me. The, the character, the mafioso character, Anthony Nino Gaggi, uh, takes under his wing a, a young man named Dominic Montilio. And 
in doing that, he drives away Dominic's real father, who's, who happens to be a boxer, by the way. Uh, he gets rid of him, drives him out of the house, uh, threatens, you know, he, he's mafioso. It's not going to be a fistfight. He's going to kill him unless the guy goes away. Essentially steals his son. And why? He spends his whole time telling Dominic, steering him away from positive things. He doesn't want him to uh, excel, doesn't want him to go into the military, doesn't want him to be class president, doesn't want him to be a singer, only wants him to be a crook just like him. And so I think that's how I see someone like Leonard. He doesn't want anybody else to be bigger than him. His misery craves company. One of the things that was... uh very prominent when I was uh, finishing up the book and going through it. You know, we were talking about this. This was a journey for Corey, I guess is one way to look at it. I'm also one of those people. I, I, I'm positive about the world. I've been through a lot of stuff, and but I'm the same way. I, I, I have a little negativity, negativity too, but at the end of the day. But anyway, in America, we always have these ideas that you like. For some cultures, you graduate high school, you go to college, you marry, you have kids. And for most people, you know, that's like the old, I guess, 50s way to look at it. But people aren't like that. People, you know, I can just give you an example of myself. I went to college, flunked out, joined the Army, went back to college, dropped out, moved to Chicago, did some social work for a while, dropped out again, then went back to school, got my degree when I was 32. And it's like I went through a lot of hard stuff, but, uh, you know, you, you come out on the other side. And I, I, I feel like that's what, you know, Corey was – working towards and i think that's a very realistic portrayal of how people are there's you know it's just it's not always like i went to bard and then i got a job as a server in manhattan and i fell in love like a lot of these books that we get or i'm an artist in brooklyn and you know it it writes about a, a a very large segment of society that actually go through things like this to get ahead in life and i just thought it was very realistic well that i want to bring that up and i thank you for saying that because so few books seem to be written about the lives that most of us in America actually live. And and that's surprising to me since... Is it academia? Is that why? I, well, yeah, and I, I kind of wanted to... It, it goes back again to, I, I think, something we started... I, I asked you about at the start, Atticus. So many of these books now feel very um, polished by a writer's workshop oh, or an yeah. MFA program. It's like the first stop in the and commercial. They, they really do line. feel produced kind of by a weird committee. There's a nice, you know, uh, bit of stage management behind them. And, I'm, you know, that's that's fine. Why is it, though... I, I'd like to ask you, you, your books do seem to concentrate on the 80% of the country that, that, you know, is trying to work a nine to five job and is trying to, you know, save a little out of their paycheck so they can buy a house and, and maybe have to go in the military. Maybe, yeah, maybe they have to go in the military to do that. Maybe they're going to go to college in the GI bill. Why is it that so many of these things just seem very underrepresented in American literature, which, which surprises me. Um, and you're writing about it. What, first of all, what attracts you to that? And do you, I mean, do you agree with me that uh, these lives are often not brought to the page these days? Um, well, I, I have the general impression that you're that yes, yes, and um, and why? Uh, I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, um, why why I write about what I write about is. Be, I follow what has interested me. I follow what has left an impression on me. Um, and, and those things are kind of an accident of life, I think. I, I didn't know where I would end up going or what would, or what would impress me, what, or what would, not impress, what would leave an impact on me. I, I didn't plan that. It just happened. And then I wrote about it. So I, I, it wasn't a design. Well, I think, I think one of the things is that people, especially with a, a lot of people, most of the people I know are not readers. And I, I feel like the impression they get of fiction is that its purpose is escapism. And it, this is, this book is not escapism. It's not escapism, no. But, you know, if you're willing to meet it on its terms, it, this, this is literature. This is reading life on life's terms and forcing you to find a way to choose what you believe. This book is not telling you to be positive. In fact, I, I would argue that many people who read it are going to say, wow, that was a 
that was a negative book. But no, there's there, there's a, there's a choice to be positive here. And when you were mentioning it before uh, about about uh, you know the way you wrapped up the book, the, where I saw the positive and and the glory and the beauty was in your descriptions. Your descriptions of things like the weather, of the way clouds are moving, and comparing it to soap suds on a pan, you know, like that was it f- for me. And uh, you know, it was interesting the way you made ti- huge gobs of time would pass, you know, behind the scenes, not being written about, and there would be this meticulous detail drawing a a, a picture of somebody or, or or setting the scene, and that to me it it gave me a positive feeling in the book amidst all this horror, and. That's this is why I read so I, I can grapple with with life. But and, life's horrific, you know, and yeah. like in the, everyone's life you have horrific right. incidents and like you know to think that you're just going to waltz through life and nothing bad's going to happen no matter who you are is it's it's impossible. Yeah, I'm I'm just speculating on why what why it may be that um yeah, you know, ordinary lives are not written about. Yeah, yeah. No, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's just like people don't want to read about like bad stuff unless death it's and, like yeah. Death and dismemberment. Yeah. Unless, of course, it's true crime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've been speaking with the author Atticus Lish. His new book is called The War for Gloria. It's out now from Knopf Books. As always, we're going to give him the last word. But before we let you go, Atticus, I know this has just come out. It was actually just released last week. Last week, yeah. What is coming up next for you? I'm covering the Jake Paul Tyron Woodley fight. Whoa, for baby. Magazine. Yeah. Amazing. For, for which magazine? magazine? For Harper's. That's awesome. Great. Cool. That's yeah. great. Mike and yeah, I both subscribe, so yeah, that'd be awesome. That's awesome. That's great. You know, that's that's also something that Mr. David Foster Wallace did. He <laughs> the Federer article. Yes, he did the Federer article, and of course, he covered uh, a number of things. He was, uh, uh, well, he covered the Adult Video News Convention as well for Premier Magazine. I that believe, was amazing. Which I, was a which yeah. was a, a great long read if you've never read. I it. I can't wait to read it, Atticus. Anything you write, oh. I'll be I'll be excited. Same to read. Here. Yeah, great stuff. Really, Atticus. First of all, thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Uh, we highly recommend the book to our listeners. Once again, it's available at any good bookstore, and I'm assuming most libraries. Libraries. It should be coming in soon. Yeah. Okay. War for Gloria, Atticus Lish from Knopf. Atticus, thank you so much for spending time thank with you, us today. Atticus. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and I wish you all the best. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, thank Atticus. Atticus. During the day, he fed her and gave her oxygen, and at night, after her feeding, he took her to brush her teeth. They had invested in an electric toothbrush. Gloria stood balanced at the sink in her white pajamas and sneakers, seeming to float due to the involuntary tension of her legs and the fact that she was losing weight. Corey held one arm around her, ready to catch her if she fell, and prepared the toothbrush. Loading the brush with toothpaste one-handed was a delicate task. He laid the electric toothbrush on the edge of the sink and squeezed out toothpaste on it. The weight of the toothpaste would make the brush roll over and the dollop of crest would fall off in the sink. There were too many things to hold for the number of hands he had, and he couldn't leave Gloria unsupported, even if she seemed to float. His hands could be no further from her than the distance they could travel in time to catch her if she started falling. He had learned to rest his leg behind her so that it became a third arm while his hands were occupied. With it, he could sense if she began to lose her balance. Once he had made the toothbrush ready, Gloria wanted to be the one to hold it. He took her hand and moved it to the brush and put her thumb over the button. He held her hand on the brush and raised it to her mouth, making sure the toothpaste stayed balanced on the bristles. You had to fit the toothbrush in her mouth without smearing the toothpaste off on her lip or teeth. He had learned to try to seat the toothpaste surface of the toothbrush against her back molars. All set, he asked. Yes, she said in her way. She moved her thumb to the on-off button. He pressed the button with her thumb. She would keep control and guide the brush around her teeth. His job was to follow her energy while providing support. She spat in the sink. He gave her a sip of water to rinse and walked her back to her bed. Now it was time to take her sneakers off because her day was over. Corey held her hands. Gloria's hands had shrunk until the phalanges of her fingers, those tiny bones, resembled beads on a string. You could see the radius and the ulna and the dent between them. There was no increase in thickness from her wrist to her elbow. Tiny guitar strings flickered under her skin, the last wires of muscle. Her head felt damp, hard and bony, hair damp with sweat. Her cheeks were thin. Her jaw had trouble working. It hitched sideways when she moved it. The flesh had melted off her legs like cheese in a microwave. Her bones rose up out of the ocean and sand poured off them. The skin draped over her thigh bones. He could see the basket of her pelvis in her pajamas, that U-shaped boat where his life was launched. He made her comfortable and tried to leave the room to get her dinner, only to have her call him back again. She was getting bed sores. 
A nurse came and peeled up the back of her shirt and rubbed lotion on the knobs of her spine. Sometimes Joan called and asked how Gloria was doing. I'm thinking of her, you know. How are things? The same. All right. Corey lived with his mother around the clock. When the home health aide came, he ran out to the library on Albatross Lane, grabbed adventure books off the shelves, and returned within the hour. Quincy was gray, and the sky was gray, and the sea was gray and white. He stumbled across a Navy man's memoir from World War II. He read it sitting at his mother's bedside or in the kitchenette, listening to the baby monitor as the night deepened. He read Lone Survivor, Service, and No Easy Day. One night, Corey was trying to make Gloria comfortable, and they had terrible trouble communicating. She became mutely hysterical. She rolled her eyes and begged the world to kill her with her eyes. He applied a great deal of force to her legs in order to bend them. He lifted her head and restuffed the pillow forcefully under her cheek. Are we good? Perhaps he had to hurt her. Who knows? His mother was quiet. He looked up and thought he saw Joan looking at him from the doorway. How about now? But it was his imagination. She wasn't there. All he had been seeing was the Buddha on the wall. He got his mother in position, drew the blanket over her again, and went back to his room to sleep, taking the monitor with him. While his mother lay in the dark, he prayed, Please stay quiet. Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Atticus Lish, author of The War for Gloria, out now from Knopf. This episode originally aired on September 16, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.